as always. Thank you, Dallas. <laughs> Had a rather unusual experience this week. Tuesday morning, I went into the prayer room and was quite weary, and I fell asleep. And as I was sleeping, I began to dream about Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Well, that was interesting. Tuesday night, while I was sleeping, I began dreaming and again dreamt about Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and applications. And so the only conclusion I could reach is this morning. That's the passage God wants us to consider. You know, they're really, given the times in which we live, there are very few exhortations in Scripture that are more appropriate than Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I'm sure this morning that this passage is so familiar that if I said everyone who could recite Romans 12, 1 and 2 from memory, please stand up, probably half the church would stand up. And then if I said, now while we're standing from memory, let's recite Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it'd be sheer mayhem. <laughs> because some would be reciting from the New American Standard and some from the American Standard and some from the ESV, some from the NIV. Even some way out left field folks might recite the message. <laughs> sheer confusion. <laughs> but you know, they'd all be correct. It's just they would have... The same wording. Translators face a real problem in rendering scripture. It uh, requires some adjustment. For example, consider the model prayer that begins, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The Greek is pater humon, ha tois huronos, agiaste nomon, which literally is, Father of us, the one who is in the heavens, sanctified, is your name. <laughs> Horrible English, isn't it? So the translators have to render it in a better way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So whatever version you have memorized, it's not wrong. But it is merely the truth in language that the translators have attempted to accurately convey the Word of God. The theme of these two verses is this. Be not conformed. Be transformed. Be not conformed. Be transformed. And this morning, we want to look behind the English translations and just notice some of the Greek terms that are involved because they really are revelatory as to what the apostle is saying. The Greek words that with which this passage begins is parakalo, which means I'm calling upon you. And it can either mean a plea or it can be an exhortation. And you notice the different verses render it differently. ESV, I appeal to you. King James, I beseech you. But the NAS and NIV and exhortation says I urge you. So whether a plea or an exhortation, the thing that was in the apostle's heart is this, I want to motivate you 
to do what I'm going to say. And so then he follows this exhortation with the Greek word un, which means therefore. So this morning we want to begin by noting the reason for that therefore. You know, all of us have heard this saying anytime there's a therefore, that's why it's wherefore. <laughs> so what is Paul saying should motivate these Gentile Roman Christians to heed his plea or his exhortation. And the reason encompasses the entire 11th chapter of Romans, a chapter that precedes it. In his writings, Paul often speaks of the unique role of the Jews, of Israel, and how there is an abiding role for them in the economy of God. For instance, in chapter 3, you'll notice the Apostle Paul writes, Then what advantage hath the Jew? He says, What is the benefit of circumcision? And then he says, In every respect, great in every respect. And first of all, because Yahweh has entrusted to them the oracles of God. The word translated advantage can also be understood as superiority. Thinking about that. What is the superiority of the Jews? Great in every respect. First of all, Yahweh entrusted to them the oracles of God. Genesis, Exodus, Viticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second. Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, you know how it goes. All of that ending with Malachi. The oracles of God have been entrusted to the Jewish nation. Think of that. And so this is a tremendous Tremendous treasure. When Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and so on. He was talking about Matthew through Malachi because that was a scripture that existed in that time. And Peter, writing later, you remember, said that the prophets of old did not have any private interpretation but wrote as they were moved by the Spirit of God. The word interpretation there is understood in the way that today you watch a newscast and there's a newscaster who interprets the events. The prophets didn't interpret the events, but they spoke and wrote as they were moved by the Spirit of God. And then in chapter 11 of Romans, Paul continues that idea and he uses this interesting illustration. He said, picture this. There is a cultivated olive tree. An olive tree that the master has cared for and cultivated through the years. And then off in the distance there's a wild olive tree that he has ignored. And one day... He cuts some branches off of the cultivated olive tree and then cut some branches off of the wild olive tree and brought those and grafted them in. And he said, the cultivated olive tree is Israel, 
the wild olive tree is you Gentiles. And he said, you Gentiles don't be proud because the branch doesn't support the tree. The tree supports the branch. And then he says, God still loves Israel. You know, as I thought about this, we have, I think, two people today present who have uh, Jewish lineage. You know, Doris Shupak could come up and stand in front of us and open his arms and say, Welcome to the family. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Isn't that something to think about? So often today in our Christianity, we forget the role of the Jews and the people of Israel, and even today the present Jewish nation, that some place has a, has, a, has a place in the heart of God that is so easy to forget. Also in Romans 11, Paul speaks of the probability, really of the certainty, I think, of someday there will be a great revival in Israel, and that will cause a tremendous explosion of the gospel. Just think of that. What if next week a group of well-known Jewish rabbis accepted Jesus? Wouldn't that make a difference in the world? How many hordes of folks would have to take a second look and come to Jesus Christ? So, Paul speaks of the fact that in Christ Jesus there's neither Jew nor free, there's neither male nor female, there's neither bond nor free, for all are one in Christ Jesus. By the way, the second chapter of Ephesians presents this same truth. You Gentiles were far off, but God brought you close. You were without hope, now you have hope. And God has broken down the wall of separation. Well, as I thought about this, you know, it's really been a, an astounding thing as we see all of the anti-Semitism rising in the world. How long will God be patient? When you read in Daniel and Ezekiel and some of the figurative language in the book of Revelation and how it speaks of the time coming when there will be a war like this world has never seen before, as a group of nations will come against Jerusalem. I have commentaries written in the 1920s and 1930s and early 40s, and I was reading one a couple of weeks ago, written by R.C. Foster, describing from Matthew 24 and 25. And he said, of course we realize today there is no nation of Israel. He couldn't write that today, could he? 1948, through the work of our President Truman, nation of Israel came into existence. But Jerusalem, not really. Our present president made Jerusalem, recognized Jerusalem as the capital. Everything is set up perfectly right now for the prophecies that we see in Ezekiel and Daniel and in a figurative way in Revelation to come about. I have to wonder, is the end times clock ticking and it's getting close to midnight? 
something to think about. Who can say? But something to think about. But what Paul then urges upon them, since you were these wild branches and without hope, the fact that God has brought you in, because of that, I urge you, therefore, by these mercies of God, the Greek can also mean compassion, I urge you by this mercy of God, this compassion of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices which are holy and acceptable unto God, which is your, and some versions say, reasonable service. Some say spiritual service. Let me focus on that word. That word is logikos. It's where we get the English word logic. And what Paul is saying is when you consider the tremendous compassion and grace of God that so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever so believeth him might not perish. And that includes you Gentiles who have been brought in. When you consider that, the only reasonable response is commit your bodies as living sacrifices unto him. And then he says, service. The word is litraia. It's where we get our English word liturgy. And it refers to what one does in a, shall we say, divine worship service. When we are singing songs this morning, that's litraia. When we went to the Lord's table, that's litraia. When a Jew brought a lamb to be sacrificed, that is Latraya. And when we say, God, take my body, take me wholly, completely, I hold nothing back, that's Latraya, an act of divine worship. So I meditated on this this week. I could not avoid thinking about that Francis Havergill hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. For 147 years, churches of every denomination have sung this song. Take my life and let it be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. Let them flow in endless praise. You know the song. The next verse, take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou dost choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thy throne. May it be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord. I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only Lord for thee. 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable act of worship. Take my life and let it be. And then in verse 2, Paul begins giving information about what we might specifically do that would enable us to present our bodies. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. The world the word translated uh, conformed is that I, which means, well, it comes from the Greek word, the root of which is skene, which means outward form. When I was in junior high school, <clears throat> I know it's no longer true, but back then in the 19, uh, when was it, probably early 40s, yes, it was required that every boy take two years of industrial arts classes and every girl take two years of homemaking classes. And so the girls, uh, you know, learned how to prepare recipes and how to cook and how to sew and darn socks, that sort of thing. <laughs> I chose my first year to take a class in woodworking and learn to use all the tools in the shop. Remember, I built a bookcase uh, Stained it mahogany, red mahogany, and varnished it. And that was a part of our family furniture for many years. I don't know where it went, and our many moves somewhere went away. <laughs> I made a jewelry box of different colored wood and had inlay lid. Second year, I took metalwork. Metalworking, we'd do things, for instance, take an old file and heat it. Uh, in the forge and then take out a hammer and a anvil and beat it and beat it and beat it until we were able to make the blade of a knife and then we'd cut the end and put a wooden handle on it. My mother was a cook in the school and one of the students gave her as a gift a big butcher knife made out of a saw <laughs> with a brass-formed handle. I have that at home in my kitchen drawer. Kind of scary looking. <laughs> we did tin work. We made things out of tin, learned to solder. We made boxes just so we could learn how to solder. But the biggest challenge I found that year was foundry. Now, in learning foundry, we, there was a wooden frame, maybe two or three inches high, about a foot square, and another one exactly like it. And so you'd put one on a flat surface and take fuller's earth and put it in and pound it and pound it and pound it and pound it until it was so compact you could pick up that frame and no dirt fell out. It was as if concrete had been set. You put it down, and then you put on top of that something that you wanted to duplicate, a plaque, perhaps a statue, something like that, a bookend. And then you put the second frame on top of the first one, 
and began to fill that with fuller's earth, and you had a stop, not S-T-A-U-B, but S-T-O-B, that you'd stick in the middle of it, <laughs> and then pound that fuller's earth, fuller's earth and pound it till it was compact. Then you'd lift that off, remove the thing you were going to duplicate, take out the wooden peg, pour in molten metal, and after it cooled, take the stop frame off, and here you had the exact representation of the thing you were going to duplicate. And what Paul is saying here is, interesting, let me say, where it says this world, the Greek word there really is I own, which means age, and he's saying is, do not let this age mold you into its shape. That's what he's saying. Don't let this age mold you into its shape. You know, as I thought about it, I believe this age in which we're now living has more fuller's earth <laughs> to mold people than any age we have ever seen. All the social media, mass media, television, what we see in the newscast, what our politicians are saying, what we're hearing in the public school, what the culture is doing to us today. Wow. This present age has more fuller's earth to mold us than any previous age in the history of humanity. And Paul says, don't let it do that to you. And one reason is, remember, the primary reason is, out of gratitude in your heart for what Christ did for you on the cross, he brought you you in. My, this is a word for all of us, but especially for our young people. Some of us in this congregation carry a broken heart because we can remember years ago beautiful children in Bible Bowl Vacation Bible school, Sunday school, memorizing scripture, their beautiful bright faces, on into fast track and basic, and some of them even carrying their Bibles around with them during the week. But today, there's no evidence in their lives that they had ever heard about God. They have allowed the age to mold them into its shape. It can happen, it's happened with many when they moved away to go to college, with some when they developed a romantic relationship with someone who was not a follower of Jesus, with some as uh, associations in their job, with some it's what happened to them in school. How sad. How sad. You know, if you have a, quote-unquote, friend 
who is trying to lead you down a path that is not the path of God, stop and think about this. Who allowed a crown of thorns to be pressed down on his head for you? Whose back was bleeding because of the whip that had been applied to it and it was done for you? Who laid down upon a wooden cross and allowed nails to be driven into his hands and his feet for you? And who after death was there a spear thrust into his side and the God of heaven let it happen for you? Is there any quote-unquote friend who did that for you? Who qualifies to lead you down the path? For the age will mold you into its shape. Oh no. There is no one like that. Only Jesus. And then Paul says don't let that happen. But instead do this. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the perfect and acceptable and good will of God. How does that happen? Notice the renewing of your mind, the noose. That's the Greek word noose, which sometimes Paul uses to speak of a moral sense or sometime of an intellectual sense, but still it is the mind. Notice it didn't say spirit, not soul, but mind. How does that happen? Well, one way it happens is through the inner work, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When we're baptized into Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and enters our life. And at least in two sermons recently, we've heard dissertations upon the fruit of the Spirit. And so that begins. But remember, it's fruit, not instant, but gradually things begin to happen in us. And we begin to see the world through different eyes than the unredeemed world views the world. Unredeemed person views the world. <laughs> and that's gradual. But there are other things we can do also. Last Sunday, Jim Grinnell preached about the importance of reading the Word. And as you read the Bible more and more, and listen, it's important that you don't read the Bible to get facts and read a book. But when you read the Holy Scriptures, you should have that sense of reading it in company with the Lord Jesus Christ who is sharing with you in that experience. And as you read the Word over the years, more and more that becomes a part of who you are. In my own life, I can testify that there were things that years ago appealed to me that no longer do appeal to me. And it's not just because I'm an old man, although I am that, but it is because the Holy Spirit has renewed my mind and changed me from the inside and the Word of God from the outside has worked that transformation and also, as we submit to God 
The Lord brings experiences into our lives. Paul wrote in, or rather the book of Hebrews chapter 12 says, you know, the present experience often doesn't feel good at all, but it is working something in us, the profitable fruit, it says. And you can look back and say, yeah, that's a rough time, but God really taught me something in that. When we wrote the do loss principle, we, we wrote this in it. When you have difficult experiences, do not run from them, nor just resign yourself to them, but embrace them, because it is through these that God will transform your life in the image of Christ. Paul wrote, I, I am like a, a woman in labor over you until Christ be formed in you. A beautiful thing to think about, isn't it? That God loves us enough to do what it takes for us to be made increasingly into the image of Jesus. And when that happens, we become increasingly able. Now, most of your versions say prove the will of God. The Greek word there is dokimadzo, which means to test or discern. I don't know how many times in the early days of the charismatic movement something would come along that just had everybody all excited. And as I was exposed to it, I would think something's not right. And then later as I would examine it, I would realize that my discernment had been correct. This is not to brag about me but it's to tell you that's the kind of thing the Holy Spirit will do in you as your mind is renewed and more and more the person of Christ dwells within. A beautiful thing to think about, isn't it? So the life we live glorifies God, assures us of greater joy, as we live the kind of life that Jesus would have us live in this world. It's important that we know God's will. It's important that we do his will. And when I submit my total self to him as a living sacrifice, that begins to happen. So this morning... I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies or compassions of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might increasingly discern the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. O oh Lord, let each of us say to God every day, take my life and let it be wholly consecrated to thee. Amen.